0: I suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh! Stories about recovery, too? Mm, But mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars! And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, Oh liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh my! Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh my! Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh my!
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores the podcast that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side, of Addiction and Recovery. And each week on LTGW, we interview season three. They're all artists in recovery. And today's guest is no exception. Although I take that back, she is exceptional. And today's guest is my sister, Meg Weston. And I know I'm a bit prejudiced that she's an exceptional guest. However, Meg has been the CEO of major corporations during her Earlier years as a photographer, her hobby was photographing active volcanoes around the world. She is the owner and maintains the premier website for volcanoes, volcanoes volcanoes.com. So I would say that even though she's my sister and I may be a bit partial, she is an exceptional woman and now in retirement or like I prefer to say refirement, Meg has discovered the world of poetry and is really mastering that art. And that's where I wanted to focus on her artistry today. So welcome, Meg.
0: Thank you. It's fun to see what you're doing with a new podcast, Nancy. Well, I guess it's not that new, but it's really fun to, to see it and experience it in person. Yeah, Mm firsthand. I think.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Well, it's all like what comes out in the interview. And I love this process. I've had wonderful guests this season. And I'm particularly interested in the impact of addiction on being an artist. One of the things that I have said right along is that addicts, are of a superior intelligence and a more sensitive nervous system. And I also think that that sensitivity is part of their being exceptionally creative People,
0: I think you know. I'm not sure about the superior intelligence part, but I think the sensitivity part is very true. And so many writers are um, known as alcoholics. You know, Hemingway, famous writers, and people like that. And you sort of say, "Wow, do you have to be an addict to be <laughs> to be a writer?" But I don't think so. I I do think you have to be a sensitive person and a curious person and a person that is just open to seeing the world and experiencing it and noticing it, I think.
1: Well, I personally think that is very true of your poetry and your photography. It's like the the light that is present in your photographs. And I don't mean just the light of active volcanoes. They you know, they, they can light up a night sky, It's all the light and seeing the light. And I remember, you know, partly I get the, um, well, I was going to say privilege, which it is a privilege to be your sister and your friend. The fact that I'm your sister means that I know a whole lot more about you than I do of most of the people that I interview. (laughs) And one of the things I recall was in your recovery, kind of a discovery of the higher power in the discovery of light in your photograph or what that meant to you. Can you say a little more about that?
0: Well, You know, I think my experience of volcanoes has always been a spiritual experience. I may not have had the words for it, which I think the words for that, I, you know, I've seen more in recovery or thought more about in recovery. But, you know, people would say, why are you so drawn to photographing volcanoes? And I'd say, well, you know, it's an experience of something greater than myself and something that gives me this sense of awe about the the power of this earth that we're and the aliveness of the earth that we walk on every day that we live on. And so I think that that's Spiritual experience is what's drawn me to that over the years. I think in recovery, I've thought more about, as you said, light, how to let that light in from that place that's beyond our day-to-day, beyond us and to tap into that energy, whether it's the energy of the earth or this kind of universal energy of space. I mean, I'm fascinated by, you know, the James Webb telescope images and so many science things that cross my desk that I just want to write poems about (laughs) because it It feels like something so much beyond just the day-to-day hassles or the drive that drove me to be very successful in business and really love doing it and feel creative in running businesses. But it's something beyond that at this point in life.
1: So let's go way back. And how early did you discover a love for Volcano?
0: You know, I... I did an MFA degree in creative writing, and I was writing a memoir about my experiences seeing volcanoes. And, and so I was really pushed by my mentors to think about the first time. And I don't remember the first time. I think a lot of kids at age three, four, five are fascinated by dinosaurs and volcanoes. And I'm sure that was me. I just never lost it. But I do remember that mom showed me an article in National Geographic magazine about the eruption of Surtsey off the coast of Iceland. Now that eruption happened on November 15th, uh, 19... 63. So it was my twelfth birthday when that island rose from under the sea in the mid-Atlantic rift. And and the volcano rose and erupted and made an island. And those images like just floored me. And I swore then that someday I would get to see a volcano in eruption.
1: And you have all over the world.
0: I have. I've been very lucky, and there are certain places in the world where they're very accessible. Um, Mount Etna in Sicily is one, Kilauea volcano in Hawaii is another, and Iceland is terrifically active all the time. And these days, I generally teach a workshop in Hawaii each year and another one in Iceland every year. And I keep going back to those places. But I've been many, I think maybe about 30 around the world. Wow. And I remember if
1: I'm pronouncing it correctly, Arial in uh, Costa Rica. was a volcano that you can go see the plume of erupting lava every night, like on clockwork. (laughs) So... So it isn't a volcano where people have to get away. They're actually driving to a field, I guess, close by and being able to witness this.
0: Close by, not too close. Too close. <laughs> uh, you know, Stromboli in the Aeolian Islands is like that, and it's been erupting since the time of Homer or before.
1: Yeah, I think there's a fierceness of that power that it grabs me. You know, like the like you were saying, a, a power greater than yourself and in many of the 12 step programs, they refer to it as a higher power. And it's the magnitude of that. I'm also curious if there isn't a draw. Tell me if this is not true for you um, a draw to that risk, you know, to the edge, like going close to, I know that you have crossed some, you know, barriers where they said, do not come closer (laughs) uh, because of your curiosity or your just desire to photograph that eruption or the lava. So,
0: you know, I've done that. And as I think, you know, I've written a poem about that (laughs) and, and it, it, had to do with um, your son, Lucas, asking me a question about, well, you know, if you had some terminal disease, wouldn't you throw yourself into an erupting volcano? And so the end of that poem is is trying to explain to him that life lived close to the edge is not choosing to die. Um, But the, you know, I don't think that I've really put my life at risk. I think I've gotten close and is risk part of it. Yeah, there's a certain edge. Uh, I think any of us maybe that are addicts have lived some of that life on the edge. You know, um, But generally, you know, I'm not one of those people that is walking, you know, a lot of they put warnings up in Iceland lately, do not walk on the lava. You know, I'm not stupid. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to walk on the lava. You know? I know it's 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. I really don't want to die. You know? But I do want to see it in all of its power. And I do want to get as close as I can.
1: Well, as you know, I quit drinking when I was 24 and I started ice climbing shortly thereafter. And I think that was a, you know, call to the edge. Um, I've certainly mm. had some near-death experiences on ice that I was not looking for. You know? yeah, <laughs> I was right. just, you know, you you caught me because one of them was when I was chasing after seeing blue ice and mm-hmm. uh, and went down in a sinkhole on a glacier <laughs> to, to see, not to photograph, but to see the blue ice. And then I went with the uh, crampons and ice axes below a, a lip of the ice that made it impossible for me to climb. I actually threw the ice axes into the ice to to just check and come up. And um, my boyfriend at the time had me on belay like 20 feet back on the surface of the glacier. And I, when I tested the ice with the ice axe, it was like styrofoam. It just came out right away. And then my crampons came out and I hung down on the rope and he had to literally pull me up out of that hole. And we learned later that that was like lifting a car off of someone or picking up a piano, <laughs> you know, that, uh-huh. that physically it was impossible to do. And I'm just very glad that he loved me. And <laughs> just, <you laughs> yeah. know. But I remember him saying, do not panic, just climb. And my response was,
0: I'm not big. <laughs> yeah, well, you and I were on a glacier once. You know, when we went to Norway together and we climbed the glacier, and I think you know at that time I was 21 and you were 16 or something. Mm-hmm. That, exactly. And I was a heavy smoker. I had terrible bronchial cough, and you were a bit overweight at that time, and yeah, we were a bit both... like
1: 50 pounds
0: overweight. Yeah. <laughs> We were both struggling to keep up and we asked if they could leave us and come back for us on the way down, you know, and we were probably the youngest on the whole, you know, climb, all roped in. So they had to unrope us and continue on and know where we were and come back. And those that half an hour or whatever that we spent alone, I remember as being scarier than any of the hiking because all of a sudden we heard the noises. We saw the cracks in the ice and all of that.
1: And I remember the guides telling us when they left us there that, you know, to watch for these holes in the ice with um, breaks from either side that could open as crevasses. So I, I was totally scared. Plus, I also remember I had very long hair at the time. And it froze. And I broke a piece of my hair just like cutting a piece of hair um, because the ice broke. And uh, yeah, that was terrifying. And what we missed on that climb by staying aside was the people going up to see these blue ice tunnels. That very experience that you just described, Meg, was what drew me to have the other experience of going down Uh in a sinkhole because I wanted to experience that blue ice. And I finally did experience it years later, probably about six years ago now, when I took my son to New Zealand and went on the Fox Glacier and uh, and photographed blue ice. So... <laughs>
0: I've had some of those experiences on volcanoes too, like a crack that opened up between me and my husband at the time, you know, because I was out there wanting to get closer and closer to where the lava was flowing. And you can see the lava flowing above the ground and it's going pretty, you know, you can see it before it gets to. What you don't see is what's traveling underneath the ground. And if it hits like a pocket of water or a septic system or well or something, it can just explode. And what happened was this huge crack opened up between where I was standing and where he was standing. What freaked him out even more than it freaked me out for some reason at the time.
1: Now, all the listeners, like you remember just a few minutes ago, Meg said, I'm not stupid. But I'll <laughs> heed the warnings when they say, don't walk on the lava. Okay, Meg. <laughs> We know. Curiosity is stronger. The passion is stronger than the common sense sometimes.
0: I do find that the older I get, the less. physical risk I'm willing to take, because I don't trust, you know, we think that when we're young, we're invulnerable, and and when we get older, we realize we're not, and that we don't have the same resilience to muster to escape from our, you know, our mistake.
1: I think that's really true. And I also believe that it's part of the Profile of an addict, which is not always thinking through the possible consequences or having this thought that we're invincible. I know many times I was using and just thought, oh, I can handle it now, or I can handle it this time, or one more oh. time, and and then, you know, paid horrible consequences. And even those, like they're. There's a saying in the halls of 12 steps where you can get to your bottom anytime you're willing to stop digging. Mm -hmm. And um, and there were many times when I hoped that I had reached my bottom and then I'd I'd use again because of the compulsion and desire to escape reality by using and drugs and alcohol and, and food. For me, I, I fit most of the liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores, you know, all the different components of addiction. I can. I didn't raise my hand in third grade and say, "Ooh, ooh I want to be an addict when I grow up. And it was certainly in the cards already. So Meg, was there a time when you recognized addiction for the first time and said, uh, or not the first time but the time when you said oh I've really got to get a handle on this or
0: you know I don't think I mean I've I've dieted for I dieted since I was a teenager right but never saw it as an addiction I don't identify as being an alcoholic um but when I'd have a drink or two I always developed a sugar craving so you know that that, should have clued me in. I even remember having a dream. I don't know if you remember my telling you this dream about the sugar bowl. So on some level, I just knew that, but not on a level that I was ready to acknowledge it. And it wasn't until that that day that Verizon cut over to Fairpoint. (laughs) And I was working from home as a consultant. And so my little triangle was between my computer in the back room and the refrigerator and the phone. And um you know, I used to have a checklist on the refrigerator each day. Did I, did I um, avoid sugar today? Did I get any exercise today? Did I have any human contact today? (laughs) You know, because I was alone in the house. And I just got so frustrated when my internet was down and my phone was down. And I was, you know, at my wits end, if you will. And I went and looked in the cupboards and the freezer for something that was gonna make me feel better. I was so angry and frustrated. And that was the point when I realized that there was nothing there that was gonna fix this or make me feel better about it. I think that's the point in which I asked you to take me into one of your food addicts and recovery meetings which I never wanted to go to before. That was the point, total surrender, I guess. But before that, there were clues like that dream or I do a vision board. I used to do a vision board on New Year's each year. And that vision board had healthy food pictures in it. And it had some some kind of God religious thing in it, which was so not me. You know, it was so, you know, not. And but when I make them, I just sort of go through tear out things, pictures that that appeal to me and put them on a board and see what they say to me. So there was some level that I was preparing for it. and that was the tipping point.
1: Verizon going to Fairpoint was the yes. tipping point.
0: <laughs> it was.
1: Anything more you want to say about the Sugar Bowl dream? You know, I wish I
0: had it right now because it was I was really angry. But I remember there was like people telling me to give it up or something. And I was just angry about it. But it was a real giveaway.
1: And a great title for a poem, by the way, Sugar, sugar Bowl. bowl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a great uh, Nina Simone song about, oh, yeah. uh, I want a little sugar in my bowl. I, yes, I just I love, love that. that. So many uh, singer songwriters, I feel are poet. You know, the lyrics oh, are, yeah. are poetic. Yeah, they are.
0: They just also have this musical ability.
1: Now, one of the things that I often ask of my guests, Meg, is about the dark side in recovery and a very dark side of recovery for me was an experience we experienced together, which is the loss of our nephew. And uh, so I don't know if you want to say anything more about that in terms of uh, darkness or any other moments of darkness in your positive recovery.
0: Well, you know, we all go through life in recovery, right? I mean, it doesn't, I somebody said, you know, God protects me, protects us from nothing, but supports us in everything. Oh, I, I like that. I thought, okay, I really get that. You know, life is just not always easy in recovery. I have more tools to deal with that not easy part and deal with the grief and sorrow of losing David. I mean, that was horrible. Um, you know, I don't know. My ex husband just recently died, and I know. I don't. You know, we've been divorced for twenty years. It's not like losing my nephew. You know, which I just every day feel terrible about or losing my best friend who died of not not of this addiction, not of this disease, but died of cancer a couple of years ago. So, you know, we we go through life and life is sad at times and happy at times and all of that. So but it is different because I don't need to look for answers in the refrigerator or the freezer or the cupboard. And sometimes I don't have great tools or don't remember those great tools that they just don't take it away. That's the thing I had to realize. But that emotions don't last forever.
1: It's like the weather. Yeah. Some good, some bad, but it'll
0: always change. Right. Absolutely. And that was a big thing for me to learn in recovery. So
1: anything specific that you want to share with our listeners, Meg, about recovery's influence on your artistic expression?
0: I love being an artist in recovery. And I think that one of the tools in food addicts in recovery um, that they recommend is journaling. And I don't journal per se. Actually, I've been keeping a journal with my brother almost every day. So I can't say that I don't journal anymore. But um, I don't journal as a tool for my recovery. But I write as a tool for understanding the world and processing the world and making sense of it. And, And that is such a gift to have when we're not, when we don't have those same escape hatches as we did in addiction, right? (laughs) And there's times when I just, you know, want to shut the world out and I want to escape. But writing often just gets me to a whole different place around that. And I love being an artist, in in Enrico.
1: You know, there's a saying about there being two prime motivators for all of human behavior, and that's to increase pleasure and decrease pain. And I think substances, that's where I get the word brighter than average, because substances (laughs) attempt to do both. And in the beginning, often succeed in doing both, increasing our sense of pleasure and decreasing pain, helping us escape. I used to call at the Bermuda triangle, the television, the refrigerator and sitting on the couch and eating myself into oblivion. And the real sadness, which I discover with many of my clients, too, is that the substances don't work, you know, not long and the long haul. It's when people come to see me for counseling or coaching around addiction is when this solution has stopped working. They don't Mm -hmm. have a problem with alcohol or drugs or food. They have a solution that
0: stopped working. (laughs) That's the real problem. I think that's true. And I think that, you know, it happens. We, 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 we. Do it in a childhood, practically, or certainly for me, it was as a teenager. You know, I think I started smoking at the age of eleven or something. And but it was it was a manner of coping with things that we didn't have other tools to cope with. And then we continue it into adulthood, and it becomes like this abusive partner, you know, that you went to for love, and you're getting back abuse now.
1: Yeah unrequited love affair and then it yes it becomes very abusive where drugs seems to have the power over in similar right. to abuse yeah on that very positive note is there anything else that you want to <laughs> share with the listeners before we conclude
0: oh i don't know i just think that it it's such a, a joyful time To be able to live in recovery and just such a relief not to be, you know, looking for answers in the refrigerator, freezer and cupboards. And um, I don't know, I feel like I'd like to read a poem. Do you have one? Because I'd
1: love to have you read a poem for us. Yes,
0: by all means. What a treat to hear a poem by Meg Weston. All right, the poem is not about recovery, but it, it is about this um, spiritual experience, if you will. And it's called All Day I Wandered Winterwood. Camera hung around my neck, divorced, discouraged, far from home, questioning the falling dust, God or no God. At midnight, I stumbled from my cabin into the Arctic night to find a place to pee, looking up the tall Keetna mountain range, loom black, silhouetted by a glowing green, vibrating like the neon lights of Tokyo's pachinko parlors, green and pink and purple flashes, pinging steely points of stars, the sky a game of bouncing light, impossible glow, shimmers and smokes, slaps me in the face, this, the winning number, stars tumble from above, divinity writ across the sky.
1: That is beautiful. Thank you so much, Meg, for sharing a poem. And Is there any way that you would like listeners to be in touch
0: with you in the future? Sure. So I now run a website called thepoetscorner.org. And the Poets Corner hosts monthly Zoom readings of different poets, some of them well known, some of them not, all different themes and subjects. There's also a shop where you can buy my book called Magma Intrusions or my other book called Letters from the White Queen. And sometimes we offer workshops or craft talks or things like that. But the monthly readings are free and you can always reach me through the website, thepoetscorner.org.
1: And we will have that in the show notes for anyone that didn't write it down, but it's pretty easy, thepoetscorner.org. And Meg Weston, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Nancy. Do you
0: suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? we might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Hmm. But mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair.